Excuse me, today and tomorrow, our preacher is Craig Parton. Uh, he lives in uh, Santa Barbara, California. He's a trial lawyer and an author of books, as I've suggested, and articles in both uh, law reviews uh, and in theological uh, journals and been read all over the country. He has, uh, and, and he will be not only preaching today and tomorrow, by the way, he will be uh, at the Latimer House in Mountain Brook uh, this evening at 7 o'clock uh, addressing area lawyers. So your Advent lawyers, uh, if you want to bring another lawyer friend, that would be uh, certainly wonderful. 7 o'clock at the Latimer House in Mountain Brook Village, uh, a class specifically directed to you, and I recommend that to you. Greg, we're thrilled to have you. Thank you for being here. He will preach to us now as after we sing stanzas one and three of hymn number 525. The other disciples therefore said to Thomas, We have seen the Lord. Thomas said to them, Unless I see in his hands the print of his nails and put my finger into the print of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Doubt has a bad reputation in Christian circles. Those who believe without requiring any evidence at all are considered more spiritual somehow, on the Lord's wavelength, than the tough-minded folks who need reasons to believe the many infallible proofs that Acts 1-3 talks about. Maybe the suspicion about doubt as a bad dinner guest comes from verses like in James, which says we're to ask without any doubt. Or maybe you've heard a sermon about becoming like a little child. Being like a little child means you accept what you're told. Don't ask deeper questions. You don't doubt. Or you hear about Abraham's wife, Sarah, doubting that she could conceive in her old age. She got rebuked harshly in Genesis 18. Or think of Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, who in Luke 1 was really not buying what the angel of the Lord said about having a son in his old age and was rendered speechless. No doubters get major league hosed in the Bible, at least that's what we're led to believe. And if the biblical examples aren't enough, we have all kinds of nutcases in the church running around today teaching that it's tantamount to mortal sin to doubt. You don't get a job promotion, says the smiley preacher, because you doubted. You don't get healed of cancer because you doubted. You don't get a nice family life because you doubted. Of course, we have that Bible story about the desperate, weeping father of the demon-possessed son in Mark 9 who just blurts out a confession of faith and then immediately tells Jesus to help him in his unbelief. And Jesus does just that. But maybe you've heard that story obliterated in a pulpit sometime to mean that, well, at least he first believed. He at least brought that to the table. So it seems like the Bible and at least certain streams of Christianity in general today are very, very down on all forms of doubt. And it gets worse. It really is nasty when people outside the church 
doubt the Christian faith, when they ask probing questions, when they demand external evidence, that's a no-no in Christianity. And then we run into our text for today, where we have the all-time biggest loser in the doubt category ever, the Apostle Thomas. Church history gives him the moniker of the Academy Award for Extraordinary Achievement in Doubt. For Thomas doubts the central teaching of Christianity, that Christ is risen from the dead and forever gets the scarlet D letter for doubting Thomas. But if we examine this passage with any care, we're going to find some surprises in how Jesus deals with his resurrection and with demands for evidence. First, set the scene. Jesus is witnessed to be crucified, dead, and buried by the time you get to John chapter 20. The whole gig is up and all that's left is a pathetic visit to the graveside by some women. The whole disciples have given up all for this man and now he's been beaten, ridiculed, tortured, and killed. Peter, who is Mr. Bold, gets positively ID'd by a little girl and denies Christ. Judas commits suicide. Women are crying at the tomb. This is truly nightmare on Golgotha Street. What do we know about Thomas before the crucifixion? Not much. A skeptic by temperament. Maybe a lawyer. No, no, no. Not the gullible type, but boy, does he think he's gotten burned by being around Jesus. And he's mad. He's messed up probably three years of his business life. Now he has to get that back up and started. In John 20, 24, it says the disciples were huddled in an upper room, but not Thomas. He wasn't with them. He's not going to any wake for this man who's dead and buried. You can let the others go, the emotional types. Thomas is so worked over by the events of the last few days, he won't even believe eyewitness testimony of the disciples who had directly seen Jesus Christ. He's not going to be persuaded based on stories told by others, even if they say they touched this risen Christ. Thomas, plain and simple, is no Christian in this passage before he meets Jesus Christ. He is an unbeliever. He didn't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. The evidence to that point was not compelling to him. Maybe the others saw a vision. Maybe they saw a hallucination. Maybe they haven't eaten much lately. Any explanation is better to Thomas than the explanation of a physical resurrection. And Thomas lays down the evidentiary burden that will convince him. I'm not believing, he says, until I get eyewitness testimony. For us lawyers, it's non-hearsay. It's somebody who saw the events and can testify in a court of law. Thomas employs a version of the empirical method. He says, two criteria need to be met before I'm going to believe. And I'll set it out to you very clearly. One, I must see him tangibly. I want to see those prints in the hands and in the nails. I secondly must touch him. I want to put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side to confirm This is the one who was crucified, dead, and buried. I want my own personal evidence. Thomas, in fact, wants what everybody else got. 
They got empirical verification in the laboratory of the upper room. Thomas wants a repeat of that. He's not interested in staking his belief on the testimony of some emotional people. He demands an eyewitness. He's not interested in some vapor-like Jesus, the androgynous Jesus lurking around in the living room curtains that you see in so much 19th century romantic literature. This is sensory data, he demands, and Jesus is going to have to fulfill those requirements or this is not going to be an apostle. This is as sensory as any physical exam by any physician. Thomas is gloving up at this point to touch the nail-imprinted hands and to reach into the pierced side. This criteria assures that some phantom Christ, some look-alike, is never going to pull it off with Thomas. That's the scene we have. Thomas sets the evidentiary burden that can be met by only one person, the resurrected Christ carrying in his body the signs of his crucifixion. Well, how would many Christians today deal with this Thomas and his demands for evidence? Well, how would pietists respond to Thomas today? I'm not defining these terms to maximally irritate the maximum number of people. Pietists. How would a pietist answer Thomas? A pietist would tell Thomas he's wrong to require evidence on which to found belief. He should believe without evidence. It's more spiritual in Jesus' eyes. Faith that requires evidence or facts is not really biblical faith at all. You, Thomas, need to take a leap of faith. And then you'll find out that Christianity is true. The problem, of course, with this is it sounds just like other non-Christian religious positions. Forget the historical problems. Forget whether it's factual or not. Just leap Leap into the faith experience. How 99% of the world's religions appeal to people. New Age spirituality. Dive into the religion and experience it, Thomas. You'll find it self-authenticating on the interior level. Nobody can deny the testimony that you've got a burning in the bosom, Thomas. That's how a pietist would answer Thomas's demand for external evidence verifying his deity. But Jesus is no pietist in our text. Well, how would a religious liberal answer Thomas? Well, a religious liberal would say to Thomas, shame on you for being interested in cold, hard facts that can be checked out through that dirty, grimy, empirical, historical method. If there was ever a vestige of Western imperial thinking, that's one. The resurrection's a metaphor. It's a metaphor. The key is that Jesus is physically resurrected from the dead in your heart and has a real physical body. That's not really important. And a wounded side today. The key is that Jesus is arising all anew in your heart. That's how a religious liberal would answer Thomas's demand for external evidence verifying his deity. Jesus is no religious liberal. Third, how would fundamentalists answer Thomas? A fundamentalist would tell Thomas, your demand for evidence is covering up a deeper moral problem, Thomas. You've probably been reading too much philosophy. Worse, you probably attended a secular college. Thomas is just creating illegitimate objections that all flow from a moral issue he refuses to believe. That's how a fundamentalist would answer Thomas's demand for external evidence 
verifying the deity of Christ. But Jesus is no fundamentalist in our text. No, Jesus doesn't handle the demands for evidence this way. Interestingly enough, neither pietists nor religious liberals nor fundamentalists are very interested in the defense of the Christian faith today. For a pietist, faith doesn't need evidence, and it gets in the way of a heart relationship with the Lord. All you can do is share your testimony. For the religious liberal, there's no orthodoxy to defend. The text is hopelessly corrupted. So goodbye to apologetics. One of them actually wrote a book called The Bankruptcy of Apologetics. All you can do is center on ethics and the horizontal relationship amongst parishioners. For the fundamentalist, apologetic questions are a mass for a deeper moral problem. And, conveniently, Jesus is returning next Tuesday and the world's going to hell anyway, so there's no point in defending the Christian faith. It centers, therefore, on preaching at people rather than persuading them and reasoning with them. But how would Jesus handle the demand for evidence of his deity? First, not as the pietists did. Jesus, opposed to pietists, makes evidence the basis for faith and provides the example for using evidence with doubters. Jesus never pits the facticity of his resurrection against faith in him. In fact, saving faith is trust in the Jesus who conquered sin and death in our stead. Jesus does not turn Thomas inward, but outward to Jesus' own saving work. Jesus willingly provides that compelling evidence to Thomas in verse 27. Reach your finger here. Reach your hand here. No suggestion here. Shame on you, Thomas, for requiring this. Bad boy. No, Jesus is no pietist. He turns the Thomases of the world from looking inward to looking outward to the evidence for his resurrection. Secondly, Jesus handles Thomas' demand for evidence not as a religious liberal would. As for a religious liberal, think Jesus Seminar. Think the kind of people who believe anything unless it's in the Bible. They claim that the biblical writers thought they saw the risen Christ, but they were mistaken or deceived at worst. But we can forgive these people who wrote the Bible because they were superstitious Jews living in a bygone age where they mistook dead people for walking around alive. What really happened, they say, is that the disciples had an eternal epiphany of the heart and really meant to say that Jesus arose in their heart by faith. Later, editors got a hold of the text, messed it all up, and created a physical resurrection. In fact, the earliest followers of Jesus, if they read our Bible now, would be shocked, just shocked at what it says. The religious liberal knows better how the story of Jesus' resurrection was supposed to read than the eyewitnesses do. Perhaps that's why our Lord did not choose religious liberals for apostles. One problem with the view, liberal view of this story, there are no earlier texts than the gospel records for the life of Jesus. There are no better texts than Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And Jesus and the Thomas of the Scripture know nothing of a visceral 
reaction to this. This is a reaction based on the facticity of the resurrection. This is a fleshly resurrected Christ, wounds and all in real history. There's no hint this is spiritual resurrection that occurred in some untestable corner of the universe, but in a room instead, 30-minute walk from Calvary. Jesus tells Thomas, touch his hands, his side. Be not unbelieving, but believe. Biblical faith is faith based on this really happening in real history. It's how the text talks. Thomas wants a real resurrection and gets exactly that. Jesus is no religious liberal in how he responds to Thomas. And third, Jesus handles his demand for evidence not as a fundamentalist would. Nothing is said about Jesus saying to Thomas, you're covering up a moral problem. I know what you're doing. You're probably cheating in your business. That's why you don't come to Christ. You have a mess of a family life. That's why you're resisting me. Thomas is rebuked all right by Jesus. But he's rebuked because he should have believed the eyewitness testimony of the disciples who actually saw the risen Christ. He had no reason to disbelieve it. That's why our Lord rebukes him. Indeed, we are indeed blessed now for examining and believing the eyewitness testimony for what the fact is we have not seen. But it's based on good and solid evidence by those who were there and paid the ultimate price for getting the story right. Thomas got a special revelation. We do not. We get the solid record of eyewitness accounts. Thomas's personal confession of Christ comes after the evidence for the resurrection is presented. Thomas is called to believe on a factual resurrection, and any call to a Christ without a real physical resurrection is a call to a Christ that the text knows nothing of. Jesus is no fundamentalist here. Well, wonderful. It's a factual event, the resurrection. But haven't you forgotten the key point? Even if a physical resurrection occurred, how are we supposed to interpret it? There is as many interpretations as there are people, right? All of them are equally valid. Who am I supposed to listen to? First, let me suggest who not to listen to. Do not listen to people living 2,000 years after the events as to what went on 2,000 years before, particularly 20th century liberal German theologians. If you want to find out about what happened in the first test of century, I suggest you go to primary source material. And second, I suggest the proper interpretation of the resurrection is best handled by getting on the witness stand somebody who actually accomplished it. In this case, Jesus Christ himself tells you what it means. John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will never die. John 3, verses 14 to 16. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. In the final analysis, though, knowing facts and the proper interpretation of those facts does not save. Trust in facts must appropriate the benefits of the resurrection for you today. Thomas got the facts right. He got the interpretation right. And it led to the greatest confession in the New Testament. 
my Lord and my God. But Thomas also had what the reformers called fiducia, or trust, in those facts. Thomas doubted the central argument, the central article of the Christian faith, and Jesus gave him evidence to believe. We should do no less in dealing with the doubting Thomases of our own day and the doubting Thomases in each of our hearts. Biblical and New Testament faith is not faith in spite of facts, nor is it faith without facts, nor is it faith in faith, but it is faith founded on fact, the central fact of the resurrection and the overwhelming evidence for that fact that has led a legion of trial lawyers into the Christian position on the sheer strength of the evidence alone. Blessed indeed are all those, even lawyers, who believe and have not seen when we will proclaim with all the host of heaven in that last day, worthy is the Lamb who was slain, who has saved us by his shed blood. In the name of Jesus, amen.